All right, we are recording. According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Uh, I'm going to use Luke today as our primary text, Luke chapter 5. Although we have parallel accounts in Matthew 9 and in Mark 2, uh, Luke gives the greatest detail, largest number of verses, seven verses in total compared to the four that we have in the Gospel of Matthew and the five that we have in the Gospel of Mark, the three accounts being uh, nearly identical in almost every detail. We're dealing with episode 11 in the Galilean ministry, the disciples defended via a parable. We wrapped up episode 10 last week with the call of Matthew and his reception, and so we're ready to move on to episode 11 this morning. Before we begin, let's take time for silent prayer and ask the Father to sanctify our thinking. In fact, we even have time to turn off cell phones and other uh, noise-making devices. I think there's got to be a standard way to do that. I think just a standard turn-off-your-phone time. and Right, yeah. Like in those, you go to the movies and they have the previews and stuff, the little commercials beforehand. They always play that nice little song when you're turning off the phone. All right. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, it is a blessing to be called by your grace, to be equipped for the study of your word. And Father, you have equipped each one of us, and we thank you for that. We thank you for the prayer time this morning and the blessings the ladies had to uh, come together before that throne of grace. We do lift up the the burdens and struggles that we all share, and we thank you for them. We thank you that you designed the church as a body to bear one another's burdens and thus fulfill the law of Christ. We do pray for Wayne Bailey and Casey Williams as they travel and ask for your hand of mercy upon them as they minister to our uh, brothers and sisters there in Mississippi. And we just thank you for so many things, proving yourself faithful day after day, moment by moment. Father, we ask now for your faithfulness to be manifest in our study, giving us eyes to see, ears to hear, and a heart to understand. And we thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, moving along in our Harmony of the Gospels. I noticed that I just took the last one out of the literature rack there in the hallway, so I'll make some more copies and get that restocked. Um, the Galilean ministry does have a total of 56 events, and so... We're uh, about one-fifth of the way through it, and that is the bulk of the study. The Galilean ministry is the largest single section in the life of Christ and will be the really the dominant section of his ministry until we get to the Passion Week. The Passion Week, the final week at Jerusalem, has itself 41 different events, and uh, that will take considerable time as well. Hope to uh, wrap this up before the Lord returns, but as always, I'm waiting day by day, and we may not get that far. I hope... Not, but that's all right. Luke chapter 5. You can tell in all three gospel accounts that this uh, episode just follows right on the heels of the call of Matthew and then the series of dinner parties that he hosted. Uh, in, in Luke 5, at any rate, we have the call of Matthew beginning in verse 27, and then we have the reception in verse 29 and following and all the grumbling. And then this event here in verses 33 through 39 really closes out chapter 5. And, and you'll notice it's the same in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 9, the Gospel of Mark chapter 2. This episode follows right on the heels of the uh, dinner parties there that, that Matthew was hosting. 
And in light of that, let's just remind ourselves of what we dealt with last week in terms of these uh, dietitians, uh, these dietary detectives, as it were, that are keeping close tabs on the Lord, uh, who he eats with, uh, who he associates with, and so forth. The Pharisees and their scribes began grumbling, it says in verse 30, began grumbling at his disciples, saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And uh, this is where we wrapped it up a week ago. Jesus answered and said to them, it is not those who are well who need a physician, but those who are sick. In other words, if you choose to not associate ever with any unbeliever or any carnal believer, then you never have the opportunity to exercise your ambassadorship. You never have the opportunity to fulfill the Great Commission, which is to make disciples. And I really enjoyed the fact that when uh, Pastor Hugh Crowder was here a couple weeks ago, that he stressed that exact thing, that uh, the imperative to make disciples really has two audiences. It has the unbeliever for one audience, and obviously they need the gospel because the first step in making any disciple is the person has to be born again to begin with. But then the second object is believers, believers that are not abiding in the word of God, believers that are redeemed, they're regenerate, they're going to go to heaven when they die, but presently in time they are not disciples, they are not living in the word of God. And so you have those two targets. And quite frankly, to fulfill that great commission, that means you and I have to have dealings with those sorts of folks. We have to have encounters and dealings with unbelievers, and we have to have encounters and dealings with carnal believers, those that are not occupied with Christ or living and abiding in the word of God. And these are the very folks here, the the sinners, the tax collectors and the sinners in these crowds. This was exactly who was in need of truth, gospel truth, and then edification truth. The Pharisees would have nothing to do with with them. And uh, that legalism and that approach, which they confused with holiness or they confused with righteousness, was actually self-righteousness. And it makes the Lord want to puke when you finally get to the description of the, the lukewarm approach of Laodicea there in Revelation chapter 3. So all of these things we want to keep in mind because this is the context for verse 33 where it's and they, they said to him. And anytime, you know, you talk about, well, you know what they say, you know, that's what they say anyway. Well, who is they? You know, I always want to know who's they when you're using they as, a, as an authority or a citation for whatever, you know. Um, well, in this context, the they of verse 33 is described or defined in verse 30 as Pharisees and their scribes. And uh, I mentioned that we're going to use Luke 5 as the primary text, but I think we're going to have to refer to all three Gospels, and we'll do that under point one, uh, to really identify not only the Pharisees, but beyond the Pharisees, who was starting to glom on to this disapproval. Who was starting to be influenced? Who was starting to be affected by it? And I think that uh, that bears some description here as well. But let's read on through. I'll just read without interruption or comment or distraction. Let's just read um, 33 through 39 now in Luke 5. And they said to him, the disciples of John often fast and offer prayers. The disciples of the Pharisees also do the same. But yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, you cannot make the attendance of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them, can you? But the days will come and when the bridegroom is taken away from them, then they will fast in those days. 
And he was also telling them a parable. No one tears a piece of cloth from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. Otherwise, he will both tear the new and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wine skins. Otherwise, the new wine will burst the skins and it will be spilled out and the skins will be ruined. But the new, but new wine, verse 38, new wine must be put into fresh wine skins. And no one, after drinking old wine, wishes for new, for he says the old is good enough. All right, that's our content there in verses 33 through 39. It is essentially, all of that is found in both Matthew and in Mark. It's a little bit more drawn out. And in particular, verse 39 is unique to Luke. Uh, that final statement about the old wine and the fondness for it is uh, is not recorded in Matthew and Mark. So I think Luke gives us the fullest account. The detail, though, that Luke does not give us is what I'll give you under point one. The questioners in this episode are, and this is where we get the different accounts, the questioners in this episode are, first of all, the disciples of John the Baptist. And that's what we glean from the Matthew record. The questioners in this episode are the disciples of John the Baptist, Matthew 9:14, the scribes and Pharisees, Luke 5:30 and 33, and all of the above in Mark, Mark 2 and verse 18. The questioners in this episode are the disciples of John the Baptist, Matthew 9:14, the scribes and Pharisees, Luke 5:30 and 33, and all of the above, Mark 2 verse 18. And this is really helpful, not beyond this particular episode, but in synoptic studies in general to observe where the different authors do record different details uh, and recognizing that they're not contradictory, they're complementary. Uh, in other words, they're all three gospel accounts are God breathed and inspired. They are factually true in the instance where they are recorded, but we complement them together for perhaps the fullest examination of this in other words mark uh, matthew is not inaccurate when he records the disciples of john the baptist coming with these questions because they did and the lord had an answer for them in terms of the, the these parables that he spoke and also in terms of his personal assurance which is given here first likewise luke is not inaccurate when he says that the pharisees and the scribes came and questioned jesus about this because that also happened neither is mark inaccurate when he says well really it was both groups that came and asked and that's ultimately the uh, the reality of it so it helps us to try to balance or try to synthesize the synoptic gospels and into a complete picture um, but Let's look at it now from the standpoint of Matthew. So hold your finger there in Luke, Matthew 9:14. So just holding your finger there for a moment. The bulk of our time will be in Luke 5 this morning, at least in terms of this incident. Matthew 9:14. We pointed this out last week, or maybe it was the week before already. We spent two weeks in episode 10 with the call of Matthew and the reception. Just to jog your memory, though, in verse 11 uh, or verse 10, he's called Matthew now. And it happened as Jesus was reclining at the table in the house. Behold, many tax collectors and sinners came, were dining with Jesus and his disciples. And then verse 11, when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples. 
We made comment at that time. I think it was two weeks ago now. Why did they not directly approach Jesus? Why is it that they're approaching these disciples? See, why is your teacher eating with tax collectors and sinners? And we noted sometimes the the uh, tangential method of the adversary who rather than just a direct confrontational approach, Matthew chapter four is a good example of that. The temptations in the wilderness and directly attacking the Lord. Now we start with maybe undermining some things by approaching the disciples first and try to stir up some discontent there. All right. Uh, such as was observed in attacking Adam, but doing so through Eve, for example, and plenty of other illustrations of that. And so they're not approaching the teacher. They're approaching the disciples and they're criticizing the teacher. See, the question is designed to simply promote a disapproval. And when it works, it works wonderfully because the disciples then start to ask that. Say, yeah, how come he's spending time with those tax collectors and sinners? He should be spending more time with us. After all, we are his faithful disciples. Why is, you know, is he not satisfied with us? Why is he going out and getting these guys? And certainly, why would he get these tax collectors? Who does this Matthew guy think he is? How could he compare to Peter and Andrew and James and John and these wonderful Galilean fishermen, so to speak? And you see how it works. Now, carry that thought into this next paragraph now. Because in verse 14, we see now it's the disciples of John. The disciples of John coming to him and asking, why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? All right. And so we start to recognize now. As far as the, the disciples of John are concerned, what do they have in common with the disciples of the Pharisees? Think about it. What do they have in common? The Pharisees have John under arrest at the moment. John's about to lose his head. They, they really don't have much in common with the Pharisees or their disciples. But here's an, an, a, a matter that they do have in common. And they're trying to figure out why. All right. And so, you know, it's interesting. They would not cooperate in most other areas for almost any other reason. But one thing they do have in common is their observance of fasting. All right. And because of that, they now have something in common here where they feel we can cooperate together and something's wrong here. Now, I've got to ask a question and I might simply just leave it as a rhetorical question or I might just leave it as an open question for you to ponder. I'm not saying uh, I'll have... The answers here, although it should be pretty obvious. When we cooperate with. Um, when we cooperate with non-legitimate efforts, what are we doing? OK. Now, the disciples of the Baptist, they, they did have this feature in common with the Pharisees. And that is the fasting procedure. The Pharisees did it. Their disciples did it. John the Baptist did it. He was under a very restrictive diet. Never touched alcohol his entire life as a lifelong Nazarene. But um, Nazarite. Did I say Nazarene? Ooh, I hate that. Lifelong Nazarite. Okay. And his disciples fasted. So they had that in common. Right? But simply holding a tradition in common or holding a, a belief in common and so forth, does that... Is that grounds in itself for a mutual cooperation on other things? See, and this is where I think churches get in trouble and really where in the 21st century now in American Christianity, we really have to observe 
what we're doing and why we're doing it when we have things in common. In case, in certain cases, for example, we find cooperation with uh, Roman Catholics in a lot of areas for, well, we have things in common, right? Uh, sometimes we hold views in common as it relates to different things politically. Well, we would find things in common with Mormons in certain areas of temporal life, wouldn't we? We'd find things in common with, you know, it's, it's interesting. Um, uh, some of the most outspoken critics of homosexuals in, in culture and society and around the world today are the Muslims. Well, don't we hold that in common? Wouldn't, wouldn't we agree that our scriptures likewise describe homosexual behavior as unbiblical and, and wicked in the sight of the Lord and so forth? We would have an element there in common. The reason why I'm illustrating this is that it is a snare that to, to take a look at one item that might be held in common and then by virtue of that find common effort. All right. And very quickly then we find the scripture about not being unequally yoked. We find believers getting caught up in movements, in crusades and political action and causes and all sorts of things. And they find that they've got these partners and when you step back and look at it and say, wait a minute, how can we be partnering with this? How can we be partnering with this? See, and, we, and I'm just going to leave it as an open-ended question because um, when you're... Um, they talk about politics makes strange bedfellows, you know. Stop and consider that on a temporal life basis is one thing, but on a spiritual basis unequally yoked violates biblical mandates and we got to be cautious now here are the disciples of the baptist working with the scribes and the pharisees and whether they know it or not whether they realize it or not whether they've just kind of been duped and sucked up into it or not effectively they're working with what their own teacher called a brood of vipers John the Baptist called them a brood of vipers and said, what are you doing here? And now his disciples are cooperating with that brood of vipers in criticizing Jesus Christ and criticizing Jesus Christ's disciples. All right. And keep in mind, a criticism of the disciples is tantamount to a criticism of the teacher. That's really what they were criticizing was the teacher for why is it that you're not fasting? Why is it you're associating with tax collectors and sinners? Why is it that uh, you're not doing what we're doing? Same thing over in Mark. In Mark 2 and verse 18, it is uh, John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And they came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? So evidently, at whatever time this was, a fast was being observed. All right, we know at least in terms of our harmony and in terms of our chronology now, we're very quickly coming up upon episode 12, which is another Passover, where Christ goes to Jerusalem for a second Passover and he heals a lame man there. We're about to get into John chapter 5. But this is a fast of some sort that was observed by the Pharisees, observed by John's disciples. We can't precisely peg it down into a particular Levitical feast, uh, but that's not unusual. The Pharisees had any number of other mandated, designated fasts in, in keeping with their own uh, form of, of worship. And we'll talk about that as well. How come your disciples do not fast? What's wrong with you? 
<laughs> right? We may, I'm sure, face similar things ourselves with family members, friends, neighbors, others. And they say, well, how come Austin Bible Church doesn't blank, fill in the blank? You know, our church does that. Why, don't, why doesn't your church do that? What's wrong with you? See, how come you haven't sprinkled these babies yet? Right? Our church sprinkles babies. Why doesn't your church sprinkle babies? Okay. Other things. Now, let's look at this disapproval under point two. The legalistic disapproval of Jesus' eating habits is beginning to spread. First of all, he's eating with the wrong people in the wrong place. And then he has the audacity to feast and drink on a day that in the Pharisees' view is supposed to be set aside for fasting. Supposed to be set aside for fasting. And we're going to talk about the Old Testament passages that say, thou shalt fast. (laughs) All right. Good luck finding them. We'll describe Old Testament fasting for you. We'll look at some scriptures. But the legalistic disapproval of Jesus' eating habits is beginning to spread beyond the Pharisees and the scribes. And it's now starting, at least according to Matthew and Mark, it's starting to influence John's disciples. Okay, Not a surprise, given that John's arrested and he isn't there to provide the leadership and he isn't there to provide some shepherding uh, protection against this among his disciples. But let's notice the uh, inherent within the question is disapproval. Why don't you? Okay, disapproval. Back to Luke 5 now, verse 33. The disciples of John often fast and offer prayers. The disciples of the Pharisees also do the same. Now these are the the very Pharisees and scribes from verse 30 that are using the Baptist disciples as an example, and they're using their own disciples as an example. But yours eat and drink. Is there, is there even a question there? Seems like a statement, doesn't it, in verse 33? You know, it's almost like a hostile Senate committee or something, right? And, and you're under a review and you, you're trying to say, you know, was there, a, was there a question in that statement there anywhere, Senator? You know, like some kind of uh, uh, full-of-himself politician that spends 29 minutes and 55 seconds in a soliloquy, and then he takes five final seconds to say, uh, what do you think, right? That's quite a question, isn't it? Well, the disciples of John often fast and offer prayers. The disciples of the Pharisees also do the same, but yours eat and drink. And, <laughs> you know, if I was the Lord, I'd feel like saying your point, you know, you're trying to say what, you know, but then I'm just kind of a smart aleck and the Lord, he was very patient with a lot of these folks. And Jesus said to them, well, of course, you cannot make the attendance of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them, can you? See, there is a, a much larger picture here that in reality, the Pharisees, don't have the frame of reference to comprehend. And to a large extent, the disciples, the lingering disciples of John the Baptist can't comprehend it either. See, why have those guys not started to follow Christ? Why have they continued to be followers of John the Baptist? 
See, if they were following a message, then they would have been like Andrew and Peter and James and John. They would have left the Baptist and gone to follow Christ. But these guys have stuck with John. Why? Why in the book of Acts do we still find disciples of John the Baptist at long after he's dead, long after Jesus is dead, long after Jesus is raised? And, and here's Paul encountering these John the Baptist followers. Well, typical humanity. We're following people, right? The original Baptists, so to speak, following the Baptist. Now, Jesus said, uh, we have the disapproval inherent in the question, at least in Matthew and Mark, it's phrased more like a question here. It's kind of phrased as a sentence, but the entire tone is one of disapproval. Remember when the Lord tests us, it's always for approval. When the adversary tempts us, it's always for our disapproval. It's always for our downfall. It's always designed to cause a believer to be tripped up. They're clearly, they are not approving this, this activity of your disciples is, is wrong. That's the logic. We'll talk about fasting here in a moment. Point three, fasting and feasting don't mix. Fasting and feasting don't mix. That's kind of obvious, isn't it? You can't fast while at the same time you feast. It just doesn't match. Ecclesiastes 3, 4. You've got to do one or the other. There's a time for everything under the sun. Ecclesiastes 3, 4 doesn't specifically mention fasting, but the concept is there. The concept is, is uh, present in terms of the mental attitude behind fasting and the mental attitude behind feasting. A time to weep and a time to laugh. Obviously, fasting is a sorrowful time, a time for reflection, a time for repentance, a time for seriousness. And uh, then the time to laugh is the time for um, in, in enjoyment and, and celebration and all the rest. A time to mourn and a time to dance. So, yes, there are times to feast, just as there are times to fast. And what the Lord is trying to point out is right now, this moment, this entire ministry is a time for feasting. It's a time for celebration. The bridegroom is here. But then he says, you know, time is coming. Days will come. And the bridegroom is taken away from them. Then they will fast in those days. You know, and with the arrest and the trial, and the crucifixion, uh, that's going to be the time. And then. Ultimately, the church age to follow. We'll describe that for you as well this morning. Fasting and feasting don't mix. And, and so there is a disconnect, right? The, the, the Pharisees were in a fasting mode, used it regularly for their manipulation of the people. The Baptist disciples were in a fasting mode. They used it for their purposes in humility and repentance and preparing people for the coming kingdom and so forth. So point A, legalistic fasting was a supposed mark of righteousness. Legalistic fasting was a supposed mark of righteousness. Look at me. I'm fasting. Aren't I spiritual? Right? We're going to talk about, I have it in my notes for us to read the Lord's teachings on fasting from Matthew 6 and we'll be there here quickly enough. But just, I don't have it in my notes is this hypocritical prayer of Luke 18. So we can just turn to that here. Uh, Luke 18, 12. And this is legalistic fasting, not legitimate fasting. There's a difference. 
you can legitimately fast. You and I can legitimately fast. It is a principle that can be applied in the church age. But it has to be legitimate. It cannot be legalistic. It has to be reality, not any kind of a ritual. The Pharisee stood and was praying thus to himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even this tax collector. I fast twice a week. See, there it is. It's a mark of his own self-righteousness. He's proud of it. I pay tithes of all that I get. So he's flattering himself, saying, Oh, God, thank you that I'm so wonderful. No wonder you saved me. (laughs) No wonder I'm favored in your sight. But the tax collector standing some distance away was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me. The sinner, I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. So if the Pharisee thought that all of his external deeds of righteousness was going to earn him salvation, he's sadly mistaken. Now, legalistic fasting. Unfortunately, there is a place for true legitimate fasting. and The Lord gives teaching on that in Matthew 6. But the Pharisaic fasting was anything but legitimate. And so I've titled it legalistic rather than legitimate. Legalistic fasting was a supposed mark of righteousness. Contrast that now under point B in the flawed logic of legalism. And it's a flawed system of logic. When you start with legalism as your starting point, everything that flows from it is going to be flawed. In the flawed logic of legalism, since Jesus and his disciples didn't fast, they must not be righteous. That's the only conclusion you can come to. What's wrong with you? This is what we do. And you're not doing it. Therefore, there's a problem. Something's wrong with your disciples. Something's wrong with your teaching. Something's wrong with your ministry. Something's wrong with you. That's their flawed logic. But it all stems, it all springs from that standpoint of legalism. In the flawed logic of legalism, since Jesus and his disciples didn't fast, they must not be righteous. See, when you start with a premise, this is just an aspect of logic now, when you start with a flawed premise, everything that follows is then affected by it. It's kind of interesting. I observed a Boy Scout camp out this past weekend and... um, eavesdropped on some conversations i didn't jump into the middle of any of them i thought ooh, back up um b3 was in one of them and i thought okay i'll get a i got a spy planted there i'll get a report later <laughs> but they're all talking about the churches they go to and so forth and it was, it's interesting one of the there was a catholic boy there who uh was putting forth that his church is the the, the true church the real church the you know because they're in direct succession from Peter all the way now to this newest guy and um, the, the brand new pope they have. And he's real excited about this guy. And uh, anyway, that's the true church. And that's the premise. See, and so Protestants are wrong. I mean, that's the, when you start with the premise that we're the true church. Okay. Well, now it's interesting because there were some Protestants there. They didn't really know what to say. They just talked about it and thought, well, that's kind of interesting. But then... Another boy comes, and he's from a more um, traditional uh, form of the Roman Catholic Church, a a particular sect that 
rejects papal infallibility, rejects uh, Vatican II, rejects a lot of the more modern things. In fact, everything still has to be in Latin in their mass and other things and so forth. And they're very... So among them now, they're the true church. And even the broader... Uh, you know, realm of Roman Catholicism is is almost the true church, not quite. And then, of course, Protestants are very heretical and, and all the rest. Okay, so the conversation went for almost an hour, and then another boy comes in, and guess what? He's Eastern Orthodox. So going all the way back now to 1054 A.D. in the Great Schism, Rome and the West is off track because it's in the East now that the true traditions and heritage of the apostolic church are maintained. Okay. In any event, all of those conversations, all of those beliefs stem from a primary seed. And then in terms of a preconceived, a prejudice or a preconceived starting point. And from there, everything then is, is affected. It's like they put on a, uh, a lens, they put on a set of glasses, and everything is viewed from that, from that perspective. Okay? And so the, the Pharisee lens, as it were, which is legalism incarnate, the Pharisee lens in looking at everything was that they were the pinnacle, right? They were the closest to Yahweh, they were the closest to Moses. And that everything else has to be compared to them. They have seated themselves in the chair of Moses, the Lord will say in upcoming uh, classes. They have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. In their view, Moses was the greatest believer who ever lived. Moses, the lawgiver. And now they, sons of Moses, in the chair of Moses, are the next step from Moses. Uh, they're not law giver. That was Moses. They are law interpreters, law teachers, law maintainers, law custodians. See, and so everything has to be compared to them. And the closer you come to them, the closer you come to godliness. The further you are from them, something's wrong. You're an outcast. You're unclean. We have to separate. And that's why they were so big on separation and all of that. Now, we've got to be careful with this because what I'm describing is not unique to first century Pharisees. It is very common in 21st century local churches. We want to be very cautious. We don't want Austin Bible Church, for example, to, spoken or unspoken, develop a mental attitude that says, we're doing it right and everything has to measure up to what we're doing. See, in other words, the categorical cult or doctrinal cult or whatever, you know, our kind of churches. If you're not teaching line upon line, precept upon precept, if your pastor doesn't exegete from the Hebrew and Greek, then you're missing the mark. See, wait a minute. We're not the standard. We have developed a system. We have developed a, a, a model we have found it to be effective. We have found it to be edifying. We believe it is biblical. But we're not claiming that we're the pinnacle of the history of the church in this generation. See? And 
we're not going to be prideful to assume that others that are doing it differently are wrong or are second class or somehow uh, going to be less rewarded at the judgment seat of Christ when all is said and done. They answer to the master same as we answer to the master. We don't want to go into this flawed logic that begins with a faulty premise as they did. So the assumption is we're fasting. The disciples of John fast. Why don't you guys fast? Something's wrong with you. Now, fasting was featured in the Old Testament. Main point four. Fasting was featured in the Old Testament. Featured is different from commanded, isn't it? (laughs) If something was commanded, that's one thing. If something was featured, that's something else. All right? We've got to be very careful uh, in understanding a difference between what was commanded and what was featured. See, it's, it's interesting. There's, we can look back to the early church and we can say, well, uh, home churches, for example, were featured in the book of Acts. That they didn't have buildings with signs out front and ads in the Saturday newspaper and websites saying, you know, here we are, come meet us here. They didn't have buildings and property and, and, and so forth. And so because home churches were featured in the book of Acts in the early church, then that's what we should do today because that's what was featured. Stop and wait a minute. Was that, was that commanded or was that featured? Makes a difference, doesn't it? Say, well, um, in the early church, Christianity was illegal. It was not authorized by the Roman government. They were not allowed to purchase a building and conduct open uh, observances of their faith to teach Bible class and observe communion and do baptisms and things. They were not on the approved list of uh, official religions that were allowed by the Roman law to operate in public buildings. And the moment they were allowed to do so, they started doing so. Okay. So if you really want to replicate the first century church, then let's start campaigning for the outlawing of Christianity in the United States of America. And then we can go underground and meet in houses and we can replicate the first century church. (laughs) I don't want to go that far. Okay. And we can replicate the the lions in the in the circus. (laughs) You want to replicate that? That was featured. Okay. People sometimes just don't think through what they're promoting. Fasting was featured in the Old Testament. Now, let's go back to Judges chapter 20. In the period of the Judges was this fasting. We find our first glimpse of fasting here in Judges 20. And and you wonder, well, why wasn't it commanded in the law? Okay. Judges chapter 20 and verse 26. Yeah, why, why am I not turning to Genesis for fasting or Exodus or Leviticus or Numbers or Deuteronomy? Why do I hit fasting? The first use of this Hebrew term here in Judges 20 and verse 26. I was going to bring this up for you this morning as well. But Judges chapter 20 and verse 26. Then all the sons of Israel and all the people went up and came to Bethel and wept. Thus they remained there before the Lord and fasted that day until evening. Um, interesting too in terms of fasting. 
Uh, oftentimes it was a daytime fasting until sun went down and then they would break their fast in the evening. That's how Muslim fasting is now during Ramadan, by the way. They don't eat during daylight hours, but when sun goes down, then they have their feast. Difference between this and then the day and night fast. When the Lord fasted, it was for 40 days and 40 nights. So that was a continuous fast. But uh, other times fasting is, is simply forestalling during daylight hours and so forth. And so this is what we have here. Now, fasted that day until evening. If I just do an Englishman's concordance here on fasted, it should bring it up for us. Strong's number 6684, if you want to do a word study on that. But Judges 20 and verse 26 is the first use of it. Then it goes on. We've got two places in 1 Samuel. We've got a bunch of places in 2 Samuel mainly chapter 12 there where David is repenting over the adultery with Bathsheba and he's been convicted by Nathan and he's, he's uh, fasting for the period of time there until the child dies. When the child dies, he gets up and he starts eating, washes his face, gets cleaned up. Okay, But Judges 20 and, and verse 26 is our first use of this word. 1 Samuel has a couple. 2 Samuel has a bunch. 1 Kings has one. 1 Chronicles likewise. We'll see the Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther verses in our study. A couple times in Isaiah, once in Jeremiah, once in Zechariah. It's not appearing very often, is it? Compared to other word studies you can do. All right. And nowhere in the law. Nowhere in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. All right. So, the... Uh, Interesting aspect of it. Now, notice here in Judges chapter 20. <laughs> this is a terrible episode anyway in the history where they're at war with Benjamin and one tribe against 11 tribes and tragic circumstances taking place here. I want you to notice when the fast is called. Um, in verse 24, well, what's happening, first of all, they're inquiring of the Lord. And in verse 23, the sons of Israel went up and wept before the Lord until evening and inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall we again draw near for battle against the sons of my brother Benjamin? And the Lord said, Go up against him. Okay? So this event is, is uh, transpiring within the context of seeking the will of God. And the sons of Israel came against the sons of Benjamin the second day. And Benjamin went out against them from Gibeah on the second day and fell to the ground. Again, 18,000 men of the sons of Israel, all these drew the sword. Then all the sons of Israel and all the people went up and came to Bethel and wept. Thus they remained there before the Lord and fasted that day until evening. So the weeping we find in verse 23, but now we find in verse 26, again, a mention of weeping, but now this time a mention of fasting. It's the first time we have this particular word. I haven't given that to you yet, have I? Not even in my notes. So, 6684 in the Strong's Index. Tsum, T-S-U-W-M, Tsum, T-S-U-W-M. 21 times in the, New in the Old Testament. T-S-U-W-M. There's another term that's closely related, 6685, is tsom, used another 16, uh, 26 times, also for fasting. Tsum and tsom. Now, 
Again, they're seeking the will of God. They fasted that day until evening and they offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And the sons of Israel inquired of the Lord for the ark of the covenant of God was there in those days. And Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, Aaron's son, stood before it to minister in those days, saying, Shall I yet again go out to battle against the sons of my brother Benjamin or shall I, shall I cease? Okay. Some of the things we're going to see this coming Sunday in terms of divine guidance, in terms of seeking the will of God, includes prayer, includes seeking counsel from your elders, includes involving your pastor and the deacons and so forth in these matters. And here's what they're doing in their stewardship, in their dispensation, utilizing Phineas, the high priest here, standing before the Ark of the Covenant. And the Lord said, Go up, for tomorrow I will deliver them into your hand. So Israel sent men in ambush around Gibeah. The sons of Israel went up against the sons of Benjamin on the third day and arrayed themselves against Gibeah as at other times. See, the problem is we get, dis we get discouraged, don't we? After day one, we give up. After day two, we give up. We say, well, this isn't working. We're confused about the will of God. And uh, anyway, this is our, not to get into the details here on this civil war and things that are happening here, but just notice the context when fasting occurred as an intensification of the prayer life. Beyond simply the weeping, now we're adding fasting to the weeping. And it was a corporate function where a body of individuals are together seeking wisdom. 1 Samuel 7 and verse 6. 1 Samuel 7 and verse 6. Let me just use paper this time. 1 Samuel 7 and verse 6. Still during the period of the judges, they don't have a king yet. They don't start demanding a king until chapter 8. And, uh, but they're being very afflicted here from the Philistines. In fact, um, let's see here. They need to be delivered from the hand of the Philistines in verse 3. And they remove the Baals and the Asher Taroth in verse 4. And they serve the Lord alone. Then Samuel said, gather all Israel to Mizpah and I will pray to the Lord for you. They're under the leadership of the prophetic and judging ministry of Samuel. Remember, Samuel was the last of the judges and the first of the prophets. So they gathered to Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord. Say, drying the water and pouring it out. It's a non-blood offering and it's an interesting offering. David likewise um, poured out a cup of water on an occasion in his life. And they fasted on that day and said there, we have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the sons of Israel at Mizpah. So this uh, time of fasting was a time of confession, repentance, recognizing that we're not walking right. We need to turn our spiritual life around. We need to get things. We need to get priorities lined up. We need to get adjusted to God's plan and program. A time of fasting is beneficial for that under the leadership of, in this context, Samuel. All right. We'll talk about that as well. This fasting is appropriate in the church age, which we'll get into. In fact, not only in terms of food and drink, but we even saw a passage in 1 Corinthians that said, you know what? Husbands and wives may decide to put their sex life on hold. You may decide that that needs to have a time out for a while so you can get your prayer life in order. Develop some spiritual intimacy there. And then when, when your spiritual life is back on track, resume the uh, resume the physical aspects of that. All right. Fasting was featured in the Old Testament in the period of the judges, 
in the period of the kings. In fact, it was King David himself there in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verses 16 and following, involved in fasting. And what is he doing? Praying, seeking the Lord's favor. Now, there's a misconception in all of this. And I think we can see it in 2 Samuel 12. The misconception is that the fasting is somehow meritorious. That somehow the act of fasting is going to affect God in some way. That He will see your actions and be impressed with them. Or He will see what you've given up and by giving up fasting or giving up something for Lent or self-denial and whatever you're doing, that your external religion is somehow going to be meritorious. That it will earn or deserve favor and God will look at that and be impressed and go, oh, wow, I'm going to answer these prayers now. Whereas before I wasn't going to answer, but now I see they're really committed to me. They've given up this or they've quit eating or they stopped sleeping with their wives or they stopped doing whatever they're doing, right? That's not the point. The point is not to impress God. The point is to focus man, you focus yourself, right? You know, the issue is always, are you focused? And is, is this prayer consideration of such vital value that everything else, even your daily bread, is set aside? Because this is now the number one 24-hour-a-day priority. And that's what happens here with David. David inquired of, the, uh, of God for the child. It says in verse 16, David fasted and went and lay all night on the ground. The elders of his household stood beside him in order to raise him up from the ground, but he was unwilling and would not eat food with them. Now, is this trying to earn God's favor? Is he trying to impress God with how sorry he is? Right? Oh, I'm so sorry. You know, well, how sorry are you? Let me show how sorry I am. You know, are you this sorry? Are you this sorry? Are you this sorry? How sorry are you? Right? It's not an attempt to impress God. It's an exercise in focusing your own prayer ministry. And it goes on. And then, as I pointed out, when it's all over, he, he uh, perceives that the child is dead in verse 19. And David said to his servants, is the child dead? And he said, he's dead. So David arose from the ground, washed, anointed himself, changed his clothes. He came to the house of the Lord and worshipped. Then he came to his own house, and when he requested, they set food before him, and he ate. The time of fasting is over. And that's what the Lord's trying to tell these Pharisees. Right now is the time for feasting. There's a time coming when my disciples will indeed fast, but right now we're celebrating. And a servant said to him, what is this thing you've done? And he couldn't figure it out. And he said in verse 22, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. Same language we had back with, in Judges with the weeping and the fasting. It is the focusing of the mental attitude. For I said, who knows, the Lord may be gracious to me. Now, it's not trying to earn favor. It's not trying to earn or impress God because grace is always the unmerited favor of the Lord. We can't earn it, can't deserve it. If you can, it's not grace. But he is fasting and praying and seeking God's favor, seeking God's grace. You can't earn it. You can't deserve grace. And if you think you can deserve it, then it's not grace. Whatever you do, 
If you've earned it and deserved it, it's not grace. So fasting is not an attempt to earn something. Fasting is a focusing of your prayer life, anticipating a grace provision, and that's what God provides. Now that he has died, why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I will go to him, but he will not return to me. Wonderful promise there in verse 23. All right. So we have fasting featured. Fasting and prayers could be a corporate exercise in seeking God's will and favor. But again, favor is grace, which means we haven't deserved it. We haven't earned it. Our fasting is not going to somehow tip the scales, push God over the line. God was up there this close to providing for us, thinking, well, should I give it to him? Should I not? Hmm. What have they done for me lately? And then they start fasting. Oh, okay, fine. You twisted my arm. Here you go. Right? If you hadn't have been fasting, I wouldn't have given it to you. But since you fasted, okay. <laughs> That's not grace. That is not grace. Ezra 8 and verse 23, Nehemiah 1 and verse 4, Esther 4 and verse 16. And it's remarkable that all three of these passages are in the period of time after the captivity when they're being restored or when they're allowed to be restored. See, Um, it's a portion of Old Testament history we're least familiar with, but it's a very interesting period of of Israel's history where they... um, were allowed to go back. They were allowed to rebuild their temple. They weren't doing a very good job of doing that. They were so busy living in temporal life. All right. And they really needed to get their priorities lined up. And I'm almost out of time. But let's look at these. Ezra chapter 8. Because see, none of these places where fasting is featured give us any biblical command to, uh, to do likewise. You know, we don't have any law that says... On these dates, you must stop eating and you have to. And when you do, these will be the rewards and and so forth. Ezra 8 and verse 23. And you'll notice it was proclaimed in verse 21. Then I proclaimed a fast. And it's interesting is when it's called for, it tends to be called for by the spiritual leadership in the immediate area as it were we saw how samuel had the leadership there in first samuel 7 here we find the the leadership of it here under ezra and his observance a pastor in the church age may recognize he may decide you know our church is in a whole lot of trouble and he may proclaim a fast conceivably he may proclaim additional prayer meetings he may say you know what we need Special focus right now as a ministry is Austin Bible Church and beyond what we do on Sunday mornings and Wednesday mornings and Wednesday nights. You know, we need to have a week of prayer meetings and I want the men to stop by on their way to work and we're going to have prayer meeting Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday morning with every man that can get in here on his way to work at 6 a.m. or 5 a.m. or whatever we do because it is that serious. We may have evening prayer meetings. We may do something else. But it's called here by the leadership. I proclaimed a fast, it says, there at the river Ahava, that we might humble ourselves before our God to seek from him a safe journey for us, our little ones and all our possessions. For I was ashamed to request from the king troops and horsemen to protect us from the enemy on the way because we had said to the king, the hand of our God is favorably disposed to all those who seek him. But his power and his anger are against all those who forsake him. See, he'd had a testimony of faith before the king. Now, he says, wait a minute. 
for God's own glory, God's going to have to protect us. <laughs> or my testimony is just ruined here in the eyes of the Persians. So we fasted and sought our God concerning this matter, and he listened to our entreaty. So it was called by the leadership, and it was observed by the uh, multiple believers here. It was a corporate function, a group exercise, a group exercise. Likewise, Nehemiah, chapter 1, Ezra, Nehemiah. When I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Didn't have to, wasn't commanded to, but this was something he voluntarily did, volitionally wanted to do as a matter of his own focus, an exercise to focus himself spiritually. And then another corporate application of it in Esther 4 and verse 16. That was not corporate, that was personal in Nehemiah 1. We have another corporate example in Esther 4 and verse 16. Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Job. Esther 4, 16. And um, Esther's ready to go uh, by faith and walk into the king's presence. But while that's happening, she wants the prayer meetings going on to support her in this. And uh, this is where, you know, if I perish, I perish. And she's ready to go in there. But go, it says in verse 16, assemble all the Jews who are found in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my maidens also will fast in the same way, and thus I will go in to the king, which is not according to the law, and if I perish, I perish. So she has an individual expression of faith going in there, but she has a corporate prayer effort going on in support of that. All right. A couple other items on this, and we can wrap this up. Point D. Fasting and feasting could be a phony exercise as well. That should be plural. Fasting and feasting should be could be phony exercises as well. You know, they don't mix. It's one or the other. And you can have a phony fast. Likewise, you can have a phony feast. You could gather together for Passover, gather together for Pentecost, gather together for trumpets or whatever, Rosh Hashanah, and, and everybody else has... A spiritual devotion is giving glory to the Lord and celebrating legitimately. Uh, you're just there for the for the liquor, you know. You're just there for the food to get stuffed and have a good time and and get together with family and whatever else is going on. Zechariah chapter seven. How often do we get to Zechariah? Don't know why they call him a minor prophet. He's got fourteen chapters. Zechariah chapter seven. See, and this is part of why the abuses of the Pharisees are so extraordinary. Their own prophets warned them about manipulating things with feasting or fasting or what have you. The, the mental attitude had to be right. Zechariah 4, the word of the Lord, uh, 7, 4, the word of the Lord uh, of hosts came to me saying, Say to all the people of the land and to the priests, when you fasted and mourned in the fifth and seventh months, these 70 years, was it actually for me that you fasted? What were you really doing? Or was it for yourselves? Was it for your own glory? Was it for your own self-righteousness? Look at us. Look how holy we are. Then verse 6. When you eat and drink, do you not eat and drink for yourselves? 
Or do you eat for yourselves and do you not drink for yourselves? Okay. Nailed them. Just busted them right there. It was totally selfish what they were doing. All for themselves, all for their glory, all for their prestige, all for their esteem in the eyes of man. We'll have to return to this next week because I want to spend some time in it. Jesus taught on fasting with a primary application for kingdom law. Sermon on the Mount, kingdom law, Matthew 6, 16 through 18. And then uh, there's an article I'd like to read from uh, the Baker Encyclopedia of the Bible that I think would do do us very well, but we're already past the top of our hour. So we'll close here and come back to this one week from today. Lord willing, rapture pending. We haven't even addressed the parable yet about wineskins and wine and patching your, uh, you know, putting knee patches or whatever on your Levi's that wear out. And we'll, uh, we'll talk about that as well. Father, thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for your faithfulness, your mercy, love and grace. And Father, we want a reality We want to live a Christian way of life that is true and real and legitimate. We don't want the phoniness, the hypocrisy of of any form of legalism. Pharisaic legalism, um, Christian legalism, Baptistic legalism, Roman legalism, categorical doctrinal legalism, whatever form it takes. Father, we want no part of it. We want the reality, the reality of relationship with your Son, our Savior. And we thank you in his most precious and holy name. Amen.